And we are live. I'm recording on Zencaster, so the audio is being recorded by the microphone over there. And I'm live streaming on here so that there's a bit of interaction. So if people have any questions, um, anything Titanic related, obviously, um, just fire it into the chat. And if I see it, I'll answer it. But in my story, I had posted something asking for questions from my followers. And I got some really, really, really good questions. Um, some fantastic questions that I'm really excited to dive into. So I got questions ranging from, you know, were there any exotic pets on the Titanic to if the Titanic had hit the iceberg head on, would it have survived and for how long? So a very, you know, broad range of, of questions there and so a lot to dive into in terms of answers. Now, for the return of the Titan Time to Talk Titanic podcast, I wanted to do something a little bit different for the return of the podcast. So that's why we're doing this. So we've got a live stream of the recording in progress. Um, and I thought that this interactive element of it as well would be something fun. And yeah, I'm excited to get into it. So I hope you're all well. I hope everyone is having a good Saturday night or morning or day or whatever time it is, wherever you are. And let's dive into it. So the first question I received was regarding lesser known people on board the ship. Now, you know, there's a lot of very well-known stories when it comes to Titanic. You know, you've got Thomas Andrews, you've got Molly Brown or Margaret Brown. Um, she was never referred to as Molly in 1912. Um, so whenever you see Molly Brown in Titanic films and people call her Molly, she wasn't referred to as Molly at that time. So even that in itself is a, just a little inaccuracy. Um but a story of a survivor that I read recently in a book by Anthony Cunningham called Eyewitness to History, Children of the Titanic was the account of a survivor called, and I, I possibly am butchering her name, so I apologise for any Syrian people in the audience, Um but the survivor's story in question belongs to a Selena Yazbak, who was a 14-year-old bride from Syria. Her husband, Anton Yazbak, who was 27, died in the sinking. So they'd been married for two months, and Anton was a successful businessman in America, particularly Pennsylvania. Now, when you think of Titanic... It's very easy for it to come across as a very kind of England, Ireland, white, European-centric kind of story. 
but there were 142 Syrians on Titanic. You know. And many of us have maybe heard of the, the one black man that was on the Titanic, because uh, there was. There was one, one black man. and But there were 142 Syrians on Titanic. 125 of them died. But one of the survivors, Selena Yazbek, who was 14, who had just got married, she'd only been married for two months, and now she was widowed. Um, yeah, it's, it's really sad, but I, I just think her story is fascinating. She went into the White Star Line offices in New York on the 30th of April, so uh, not long, less than two weeks after the Carpathia had arrived in New York, and she had an interpreter with her because she couldn't speak English. So the interpreter explained to the people working at the White Star Line American offices her situation, that she had been on the deck with her husband. She was grabbed and thrown into a lifeboat because she's 14. She, she is a child. So the officer that threw her into the lifeboat viewed her as being a child, and she was, you know, she was 14, she might have been married, you know, she might have been a bride, but she was still a child. But her husband, who was 27, was classed as an adult, and would have looked very much like an adult compared to Selena, who was only 14. So she's explaining this to the people who work in the White Star Line offices, and... I just, I can't even begin to imagine the, the different stories and the people and that the must have been coming through the doors in the, the days, weeks and months after the, the sinking and after the survivors arrived in New York. It's just, it's wild. It's just, it's totally wild. But I wanted to highlight this story because it just shows that the Titanic story was not just Irish, English, American, French. It, it was not just that. Um, there were 142 Syrian passengers on the Titanic. And, I mean, even just the fact that 125, 125 people of the nearly 1,500 people who died were Syrian. I mean, that in itself is, is huge. I mean, yeah, that this big percentage of the people that died were, were Syrian. Uh, I, ju I just think it's fascinating. Now, Selena, it's not known for, for certain because she didn't know. A lot of this, this is actually surprisingly common, that a lot of the survivors didn't know what lifeboat they were on, which is fair enough. You know, when you, in the middle of the morning, it's dark, it's noisy, it's chaotic, it's distressing, it's harrowing. You've been, you know, ripped away from your husband or your, your child you know, because your child is an adult, you know, you've been torn apart from then. And the last thing on your mind is going to be, what lifeboat am I in? That's not really important. So a lot of passengers didn't actually know what lifeboat they were on. And it was only really when being questioned or if they spoke about, you know, there were this many people on it and, oh, this person was on it. So, okay, if a well-known person was on it, then it's easier to identify what lifeboat that would be. Um, now, Selena didn't know 
the faces on the lifeboat, she roughly knew how many passengers and how many crew were on it. And judging by her statements of she said around 30 passengers and about five crew, it's highly likely that she escaped on collapsible sea. Now, collapsible sea is very known, even if you don't know it's collapsible sea, because collapsible lifeboat sea was the same boat that Bruce Ismay went on. Now, that's a whole different conversation. You know, did he sneak onto it? Did he jump on when no one was looking? Or did Officer Murdoch force him to go on? We'll never know for certain, but there's a lot more evidence points to the fact that Bruce Ismay was actually encouraged to go on as opposed to just jumped on out of spite to save his skin. But it's highly likely that Selena Gazbak was on Collapsible Sea. Another interesting thing about Collapsible Sea, um, which was told by passengers who knew they were in Collapsible Sea and could remember this, um, this could be due to the fact that they were English-speaking, that they were used to American and English faces of the time. So Selena probably didn't recognise Bruce Esme, but other British and some American passengers would have recognised Bruce Esme in the lifeboat. These passengers stated that they found three Chinese men hiding, quote-unquote, hiding in the bottom of the boat. Now, there's a documentary that was released, I think, last year. I'm pretty sure it was delayed due to the pandemic, but it's called The Six, and it details the events and the experiences of the six Chinese passengers who survived the sinking of the Titanic, and one of whom... We'll get to his story a little bit later in relation to another question. But one of these passengers was actually found in the water. Um, he had tied himself to a door. And there's a deleted scene in James Cameron's 1997 film which shows the rescue of this passenger. But on Collapse We'll See, where Selena Yazbek was, passengers reported to find three Chinese men hiding in the bottom of the boat. Now, the sex documentary details this, but apparently they weren't hiding. Apparently, they knew that something was going on. They had cabins in the bottom of the ship. They saw that there was water coming into the ship, and they did what anyone would do. They thought, I'm not going to stick around. Why? I'm, I'm going to get on a boat. There's, there's lifeboats. I'm going to get on a boat. They got on a boat. Who can blame them? Now, we as, you know, British, European, American people might think that sitting on the floor is a bit weird. In China, that's far more common. It's far more common to sit on the floor. And these three Chinese men defended themselves by saying they weren't hiding. They were sitting down. The, the, the lifeboats had benches, they had wooden benches built around and into the boat. But these three men sat down where they would normally sit. They sat on the floor. 
Now, it's very easy to see how three men sitting on the floor eventually turned into three men hiding. And when you look at even Bruce Esme, who was on that same boat, people at the time said that Bruce Esme dressed as a woman, put a headscarf on to look like a woman. That And that's not true. He didn't do that. But Chinese whispers, excuse the pun, Chinese whispers, eventually led to people believing that Bruce Esme had actually dressed as a woman. He didn't. He didn't do that. He just got on the boat. Whether that was because he wanted to or he was told to, there's an argument to be made for even though Murdoch was telling him to, he didn't have to, but he did. So, you know, it is what it is. But these Chinese men were completely hounded and criticised for, you know, being cowardly and hiding under benches on this boat and and back in their homeland of China, they were completely, you know, viewed as dishonourable and, you know, that they had done something wrong by surviving. And that was the same in Britain and America. You know, um, first officer Charles Lightoller, sorry, second officer Charles Lightoller, um, was looked down upon for surviving, d- despite the fact that, you know, he was very lucky to survive. He, pr- he probably shouldn't have survived. Um, you know, the man stood on top of an upside-down lifeboat for hours in the dark and got to Carpathia. Like, and he had been in the water before that. He had been sucked against a, a fan or a ventilator on the ship and dragged down twice. Um, I think his pistol, actually, he had a gun in his pocket and that weighed him down as well. The man was lucky to be alive, but people viewed him as having done something wrong for a living. So the, the only thing I can think that Lightoller should have done that night to be seen as honourable was, like, kill himself? Like, willingly die? Um... I mean, Frederick Fleet as well, who was the man that spotted the iceberg, he also experienced this kind of prejudice of dishonour for surviving, and and he eventually did take his own life. You know, he killed himself. So, just, you know, different time. Crazy. But, um, so Collapse We'll See had a lot going on. Um, yeah, Collapse We'll See. Wild ride. I mean, you, you could make a movie just on that. You could just look at each lifeboat on its own and make an individual story just about that. Because there's just, there's so much to going on. At, but Collapse, we'll see, had a lot. So, so yeah, lesser known people, I think Selena Yazbak, the 14-year-old child bride from Syria, and the husband she lost, Anton Yazbak, who was 27, and was a businessman in America, I thought that that was worth highlighting, because, you know, if, if, if you said to someone, were there Syrians on the Titanic, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know an answer. Um, unless they were obviously very much into the disaster and were doing this kind of research and reading into it. But there were 142 on that ship. Of the 2,200 passengers, 142 of them were Syrian. So, you know, I, I think that's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see what other nationalities and races and, you know, religions and, you know, who was on the ship. I, I find that stuff really, really fascinating because for me, when I'm looking into the tragedy, it's the people that really fascinates me. I find that a lot of people, when they're talking about this, 
and they talk about the sinking and the, the loss, they're talking about the ship a lot of the time. And I get it. She was, she was a marvel of her time, you know. She was the largest ship moving object of, of her day. Her facilities and her, you know, the amenities on the ship, it was all cutting edge. It was all brand new. It was, it was incredible. But, you know, when the ship sank, it's not like this big, massive living entity died. It was just metal and wood and linoleum. Who cares, really? Nearly 1,500 people died. That's fucking wild. I don't think people actually appreciate how many people that is. In the room you're in right now, okay? Whatever you're listening to this. Or watching, if you're watching right now. In the room you're in right now, look around. So in this room, I mean, 10 people would be a, you know, they'd fit, but still. If you think of 10 people, then 20 people. 30 people, 40 people, 50 people, go up to 100 people, you know, 100 people, that's a lot of people. That's a, 100 people is a lot. Now times that by 10. Now add on 496 onto that. Like, that is a lot of people. People don't appreciate that. And they seem more sad about the fact that a ship sank. Nah, I... Again, excuse the bun, but I can't get on board with that. I can't get on board with... It's a shame that this beautiful ship sank. If no one had died, if no one had passed away, lost their life, frozen to death, drowned, been crushed, other horrific endings, um, let's say no one died. There were no deaths. But the Titanic was still pretty famous for the irony of it. You know, the irony of this huge, luxurious, cutting-edge, biggest ship of her time, sinking on her maiden voyage. You know, gosh darn it. We tempted fate and we lost. Then I would think it was a shame. I'd be like, oh, that's sad, because she looked pretty cool and that'd be awesome if she was still here. But then actually, if you look at Olympic and Britannic, Britannic became a hospital ship and Olympic was... Um, also used in the war, and then was scrapped in the 30s. So, so really, we'd just be saying, well, she would have eventually went into war and service, and she'd been scrapped or sank anyway. So, I just think, remember the people. Remember, there were humans, you know, when... Hmm, human lives, human lives. I mean, earlier I saw someone had bought a towel... Or a blanket. It was it was pretty big. I think it was a blanket. And it had a painting by someone printed on the blanket of the ship sinking. And in it, you know, there are people standing on the stern and in the windows. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, it's a cool painting. Now it's a blanket. Mm -hmm. But then the comments were people saying, you know, some of the comments were saying, that's really cool. I like that. Awesome blanket. Where'd you get it? But a lot of the comments were saying, you're going to lay on your bed or your sofa and you're going to pull a blanket over yourself that has people on it that are going to die? Are we sure, Chief? Are we sure about that? Do you want to think it through? It's a weird one. I don't know. I mean, I got into a bit of a back and forth with someone on Facebook because they posted 
uh, don't know if it was like 3D printed or if it was um, cast. I, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I don't want to know. Because it was the shape of an iceberg, but coming out of the iceberg was Captain Smith's face. So it was like an ornament. You know, you'd set it on a shelf or a table or a mantelpiece. An iceberg with Captain Smith's face on it. Do we really want to make ornaments of dead people on top of the thing that killed them? Do we? You know, when I, when I think of 9-11, I think of that very harrowing phone call from Kevin Cosgrove, who was in the tower on the phone to the emergency services when the tower fell. Are we going to make a bust of his face on top of a plane? Or on top of a, a skyscraper? Maybe in a hundred years. Maybe. You know. All that to say, I just think it's really important to think of the human element of the tragedy. So Selena Yazbek and her poor husband Anton Yazbek. R.I.P. Next question. Again, thinking about people, the humanity of it. Should artifact be retrieved from... Now, I want to kind of split this into two categories. The question didn't, which is completely fair enough because I, I knew what it was asking, but I want to differentiate. Differentiate. That's a hard word. Differentiate. That's it. Differentiate. Got it. I want to kind of break it into two. There we go. I want to split it up. And say, should we take artifacts from the debris field? Should we take artifacts from inside or on top of the ship? And that's because I think the two things are kind of different. But again, I don't know why. And it's weird because I've just spent time saying I think people need to stop viewing the ship as this loving entity. I think people need to stop viewing the ship as the, the, the worst thing that was lost. And I think actually we should view the people as the thing that's the most important thing that was lost, which is true. People, nearly 1,500 people died. That That is the most important thing. However, I think when it comes to artifacts and retrieving these artifacts, I've never been able to really put my finger on why, but retrieving artifacts from the debris field, which is the massive area surrounding the wreck of the ship, I think retrieving things from there is okay. I think, personally. Some people might disagree. However, I think that retrieving things from inside the ship, no. I don't feel as good about that. My reasons kind of changed because I used to think that, well, if you get things from inside the ship, people died in there. You know, people were inside the ship and it sank and that's not cool. You know, it's like going into a tomb and taking things like, don't do it. That's not great. But there were also bodies that would have been laying around the ship after it sank. Because nowadays when people that go and dive to the wreck go around the debris field, there are countless 
pairs of shoes just lying side by side and the leather with the the treatment that's on the leather they've not disappeared they're still there you know there's leather shoes lying side by side in pairs so that's where a body would have lay 110 years ago and yet if there was say a floor tile you know a beautiful floor tile or a lamp, you know, laying near a pair of shoes. I'd say that was fair game. I'd say, yeah, go for it, lift the lamp. We want to see the lamp. It's cool. Bring up the lamp. Or bring up the floor tile. Want to see it. But for some reason, when it comes to the ship, I'm less keen. Maybe it feels like more of a tomb because the people that died inside the ship, they were at least alive when they were in the ship and when they died. Whereas the shoes lying around in the debris, debris field, they would have been dead on the way down. Like they would have been dead when they got there. I don't know. And also there's the risk with retrieving artifacts from inside the ship that and it has happened um james cameron himself has done it and he's recorded himself doing it um he's not the only one he's probably just the most well known but there's the risk of damaging the ship when we're bringing things out when we're putting things in you know these rovs and submersibles and they they can damage the ship, and they have done. Um, I don't know what kind of state it's in now, but there was a petition to retrieve the Marconi wireless from the ship. And in order to retrieve it, they would actually have to cut a hole in the top of the Marconi room. No. No. If you need to destroy the wreck of the ship, I mean, it's disintegrating and falling apart quickly enough as it is. Um, but I think if you have to cut into the wreck in order to retrieve something, no. Absolutely not. No. Don't do it. If it was lying on the boat deck, let's say on the boat deck there was like a doll lying there. Yeah, pick it up. It's there. It's cool. Bring it up. But if you need to cut a hole into the roof of something to get something out, no. Nah. Because that's going to further weaken that structure and just help it to collapse. And I don't, th I don't think that's okay. I mean, I know that eventually Titanic's going to disappear, but I don't think we should be helping to speed up that process. So we get to summarize. Debris field, pick up artifacts. Inside the ship, no. On the ship, so kind of like top deck, yeah. Yeah, I think. Now, I got a really good question regarding support for those left behind by... You know, obviously, the, the many people who died, mostly men, 
um, that left a lot of widows, a lot of orphans, and this person was asking what kind of support the people left behind got. But before I answer that, I just want to have a quick look through the comments on the live stream and see what's being said. So, well, let's scroll back up to the top. Thank you everyone who has joined so far. So, first comment, nice mustache. Thank you very much. I'm glad you like the mustache. I have a mustache for those of you who are just listening to this. I didn't always have a mustache. Well, I mean, obviously, because babies aren't born with a mustache. But um, I used to have quite long blonde hair when I was about 16. And one Halloween, I went as Jack from Titanic because I had quite long blonde hair and, you know, I did, like, the makeup to look all frozen and dead and I put broken handcuffs around my wrist and it was fun, it was great. I looked cool. I think... I think there's a picture of that on my Instagram. But now, I've got quite short, dark brown hair and I've got a moustache. Pretty, pretty thick, dark moustache. So instead of looking like Jack, nowadays I probably look more like Bruce Esme. Um, like a young Bruce is me. And I was thinking earlier um, that saying of you either die the hero or you live long enough to become the villain. And that's what's happened to me. I did not die the hero, which was Jack. I lived long enough to become the quote-unquote villain. Bruce is me. But was he a villain? I don't think so. And we have, oh, Alex Dempsey. Hello, it's been a long time since I've been here. It has. Well, it's been a long time since I've been here, so thank you for joining. Yeah. And Peter Panbird. Titanic is a painful story. It is. I think it is a painful story. Um, we're desensitized to it somewhat now because it's been so long, but I think thinking back to... and when I answer the next question, we'll kind of get into that kind of aspect of it. But I think when you think about 1912, the the very raw, immediate aftermath of it must have just been really harrowing, even, even for people that weren't directly affected by it. Just hearing about it, you know, in the, t the time that it happened, must have just been really distressing, to be honest. Um yeah. So, in regards to the Titanic Relief Fund, I don't know how much people know about this, but there's some really interesting stuff. So, I have taken notes from the minutes of the Relief Fund, which were, you know, this was written in 1912, and this was detailing what compensation different people would get and what criteria they had to meet in order to get compensation. So, the net amount of the fund for the relief of Titanic sufferers has now reached approximately the sum of well over $2 million, which in 1912, can we just appreciate how much $2 million... In fact, let's, let's look that up. Two million dollars 
1912. I think that's worth looking up how much that would have been. So, 2 million dollars in... Because that, that is so much money. I mean, the fact that they raised that much is just insane. Oh, we've got some um, questions coming through just now. I was trying to Google the other day, but never found the answer. Where did the crew eat? I wondered if you knew. I've seen on the new update there's a small mess room in Scotland Road. So, the aft grand staircase at the bottom of that. So, if you were in the aft grand staircase and you walk to the bottom of the steps, on your right, there's the barber shop, but on your left, there's a room there, and that's where servants would eat. So, you know, first class kind of would have servants. So, in the 1997 film, Miss Trudy is a servant. So she would eat there. So she would go to the afterground staircase, go down and to the left, and that would be where she would eat. Um, the only other count that I can think that has almost definitely made that kind of room or render would be RMS Titanic Design, which you can find on Instagram. Um, because the only reason I know about the servants' dining room is because of RMS Titanic Design. Um, so if you don't follow them, you should, because they make renders of rooms that you just would never have seen um, otherwise. It's, yeah, it's insane. It's, right, let's see. Inflation calculator. Okay. That doesn't make sense. So right now, what I'm trying to do is find out how much $2 million in 1912 would be today, because that's just an insane amount of money. Um, I mean, it's saying there that nowadays, $2 million in today's money, back in 1912, would have been $69,000. So that, you know, that just shows you that in 1912, if you had $69,000, you would have had $2 million today. That's... So yeah, so it just shows you how much money they raised for the relief fund. They raised a shit ton of money. So much money. So it is proposed to set aside a million and a half dollars to meet the cruise claims. The 654 cases to be dealt with having been classified according to earnings upon information supplied by the White Star Line. Out of these seven classes have been arranged as follows. Now, there were seven different tiers of widow, which they would have kind of based on the position of the crew member that died. So if it was a very well-off crew member, if they were getting paid quite a lot, if they had quite a senior position, they would have been kind of at the top. If it was a stoker or someone that, you know, that shoved coal into the boilers, they'd probably be near the bottom, which is just crazy. That even in death, even in death, they were viewing these people on this scale of, you know, how much can we justify paying you? 
even though you're dead, and even though we're kind of responsible for you being dead. Wild. Absolutely wild. Um, so class A, which was the top tier, there were 13 widows who received a weekly allowance of $10. Second tier, 54 widows received a weekly allowance of $7.62. Third, 43 widows who received a weekly allowance of $6.87. Then one below that, fourth, 177 cases of widows who received a weekly allowance of $5. And yeah, it just goes down and down. So there's 88 widows get $4 a week, um, 246 widows that get $3 a week, and 33 widows that get just over $2 a week. So, you know, the relief fund was getting spent. You know, at least these people were getting money. But I just, I just completely disagree with the fact that, you know, they were being viewed on this scale still. I just think that's really... It's not great. It's not we don't we don't love to see it. We don't love to see people that were, you know, killed accidentally or not still being viewed on this hierarchy scale. It's just not not cool. Um so yeah, there we go. So the first class refers to widows of officers, the second to engineers and senior stewards, the third to engineers and under stewards, the fourth to engineers, stewards and storekeepers the fifth to leading firemen, greasers and stewards, the sixth to sailors, firemen and trimmers, and the seventh to casual stewards. So they had looked at the income and the, the role, the job role of all these people that died and judged how much they were worth paying out to their widows. Insane. Um, but at least they got something. So there's that. In all, there was a grand total of 1,461 dependents. So, so really, you know, if you think there were 1,496 people who died overall, pretty much every single person that died had someone who depended on, on them, um, whether that was a child or a, a widow, a partner, a family, you know. So nearly every single person that died had a payout from the relief fund go to whoever they left behind. So a grand total of 1,461 dependents, 592 of whom are minor children. It is proposed also to devote the sum of $700,000 to meet the claims of 513 passengers. Of these, 200 belong to the United Kingdom and 313 are foreign. So 513 were passengers, so nearly a thousand were actually crew. So so far more crew than passengers died, clearly, you know, looking at this. Um which which makes sense, you know, when you think that the ship wasn't at full capacity in terms of passengers. So there would have been more crew than passengers overall um on, on the ship, which there would have to be, you know, to keep a ship that size running and you know, keep everything, you know, tip top shape. You would need that. So the fund was initiated by the Lord Mayor of London. The allowances for children ceased at the age of 16 for males 
and 18 for females. So if you were a child, uh, an infant, a baby, um, when your parents or your dad died on the ship, you would receive money from the Titanic Relief Fund until you were 16 if you are a boy or until you were 18 if you were a girl. But widows, the wives of the men that died, would receive that money for their whole life. You know, they would continue to get that. Um, unless they remarried. If they got married again, it would stop. Because obviously their new husband would, it would be expected that they would support them. So, and the final payment. So this started in 1912. The last payment was made to a woman in Southampton who lost her husband. And that was made in 1997. The same year that James Cameron's film came out. The last payment from the Titanic Relief Fund from that $2 million in 1912 was made in 1997. And I, th I think that just shows how much money they raised. You know, $2 million in 19... Over, over $2 million in 1912 was able to continue to go on for 85 years. Wild. Wild. So in France, um, just these are some examples of how widespread this relief fund went. So although it was started by the Mayor of London, and although the writings I've been saying are in dollars, um, so obviously this was written by the American branch of the White Star Line, in France, um, there was one widow, um, Louise Laroche. Now, I could be wrong, but I think that is the widow of the Joseph Laroche. Now, was he not the black passenger that we were talking about earlier? Because we mentioned that there was one black man on the Titanic, and I think it was possibly Joseph Laroche. But I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But anyway... Widow Louise LaRoche received £130 from the relief fund in to totality. So she either died or she remarried. But in total, she received £130. In Mexico, there was a widow who received £150. And in Syria, there was a widow who received £50. So France, Mexico, Syria... This relief fund was being sent everywhere. You know, the, the Titanic tragedy did not just affect Britain, Europe and America. It affected the whole world. The entire world was affected by the sinking of Titanic. It's just fascinating. I, I find it fascinating. Now, one of the questions, I like this question. Interesting question. I mean, they've all been interesting, but this one's out there. Were there any exotic pets on the Titanic? Now, sadly not. There weren't any exotic pets. So, you know, there was no one getting on the ship with, like, a snake around their neck. There was no one that had, like, a wombat, sadly. It was dogs. They were mostly dogs. Um, There's a, a very kind of 
widespread rumour, whether it's true or not, we'll never know, but that John Jacob Astor let the dogs out of their kennels. And because he was a, a dog lover, you know, apparently John Jacob Astor let them out and they were running around the decks. But definitely there were dogs seen in the ocean in the days and weeks after the ship actually sank. There was a ship that was passing by the area um, after the sinking and someone on the ship reported seeing the body of a woman hugging a large St. Bernard dog. That would have been pretty harrowing to see, you know? You're just looking over the edge of the ship, you're admiring the view, you're looking at the waves, and then you see a dead body, and a... they're hugging a dog. Pretty wild. Um, there are also rumours that there was a cat on the ship, we don't know how true this is. We don't know how true it is that there was a cat. Now, it is true that in this day and age of 1912, not nowadays, back in 1912, that they would have cats on ships purely to catch mice and rats. And that's it. You know, it's as simple as that. There's a cat on the ship. It's the ship's cat. The cat goes around, does its thing, and it catches vermin basically which great cool that totally makes sense so it would also make sense that titanic had its own but for some reason there's a lot of dispute about this there's you know arguments because sh when ships are built they're sitting around for a long time a long time you know between you know from being built to being furnished fitted out and then setting sail plenty time for rats to like sneak on board and make little nests and the lower you know decks and stuff like there's no question that titanic definitely had rats there were rats on that ship let's let's not be a bit bush um yeah there you know some poor rats died in the atlantic in 1912 r.i.p by rats um but there's debate about whether there was a cat on the ship no one reported seeing a cat. Um, you know, cats can be elusive, but you'd think that someone, you know, even the crew, would have said that there was a cat on it, but it's just not something that has been reported as fact. But I think that if we did know for certain that there was a cat, that would probably be the most exotic because dogs were pretty common. Um, there were quite a lot of dogs on the on the ship. Um, some even survived. Some were brought onto lifeboats. You know, which I think is pretty shocking, considering that literally half of the children on Titanic died. Fifty six children survived. Fifty six children died, and yet there were dogs that lived. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Can't relate. Breakup theories. So, I think this is interesting because there's been a lot of theories. You know, there's the banana peel theory, there's the top down theory, there's the, the infamous Add in 1912 V break, where the bow miraculously defies gravity and like shoots out the water. Why? We don't know. We'll never know. Um, we want answers. 
but you won't get them. If anyone knows how to get in contact with Adam in 1912, let me know, because I'd love to have him on the podcast. That'd be wild. Um, I'll not get my hopes up, because it probably won't happen. But I think the, the thing that people weren't taking into account I mean, I say people, I mean, like, researchers, like, and, you know, like, James Cameron, he did, he did a lot, a lot of documentaries, a lot of stuff, you know, regarding the ship and the breakup, and, you know, he made a documentary called, was it The Final Word? The Final Word with James Cameron, and it was not The Final Word, because he was wrong, um, you know, he just was wrong. He didn't look at what was on the ocean floor. Now, if you go into a crime scene and you're trying to figure out what happened, you don't just look at the body. You don't just ignore everything else. You don't just look at the body and say, oh, this is what happened. Because look, you've got to look around the room. You know, are things disturbed? Are things knocked over? Is there blood splatter up the ceiling? Is it just on the wall? Is there a window open? Is there a window smashed? Or or is the room completely clean? You know, is the room immaculate? Was the body, was were they actually killed here? Or were they not? Like, you've got to look at all these things. And a lot of people kind of, from when the ship was first found until about 2010, 2012, they were kind of ignoring the debris field. And the debris field, if you're looking at it in a forensic sense, is really important because it tells a lot about what happened on the surface. So it says a lot about what happened at the top and how those things came down to be on the debris field. And what we now kind of know is that, so there's a section called the big piece. And the big piece is in, I think, Las Vegas now, which I just, I don't know. I, I, I disagree. I don't think a part of Titanic should be in Vegas, but it is. I guess, I don't know how it will. I mean, I guess it gets a lot of tourism, so they must make a lot of money. But I just, I, just, I feel like an, a physical, huge section of Titanic's hull with portholes and everything should either be... In fact, not even either. I take that back. It should be in Belfast. It should be where it was built. Hot take. Just putting that out there. But anyway. Um, but the, so the big piece supposedly came from a section of the ship. And we refer to these as the towers. So when the ship was breaking... There were sections that kind of stayed as huge, big chunks. And we call these the towers. And the towers were apparently the only thing kind of keeping it together towards the end. So as it was slowly breaking apart. The angle that it broke at varied a lot. So, you know, there was, you know, 20 degrees. Some have said like 13, 14 degrees, which isn't a lot at all. Um, James Cameron showed like 40, 50 degrees, you know, his was like way out of the water. The, sometimes it's breaking below the waterline, sometimes it's breaking above. I mean, again, James Carmen's breaks quite above the waterline. Um, and I, I think a lot of the time you just need to look at the survivor testimonies. The fact that so many survivors didn't know that the ship had broke 
or even the ones that kind of thought she broke weren't even sure. That would imply to me that she didn't break above the waterline. You know, she didn't break very visibly. So that would show to me that she broke slightly below the waterline. The fact that, again, it was subtle enough that people didn't really know what happened, but they knew that she leveled out. That would imply that it wasn't a very high angle. So it wasn't, you know, 50 degrees and, you know, as she fell back, it created this huge wave like in the James Cameron film. That just didn't didn't happen. Um, it was much more subtle than that, much more subdued. And these towers that I mentioned being the only thing that kind of held the ship together, that's what's on the, the ocean floor. When you look at the stern, okay, you look at the stern and you say... It's destroyed, there's a lot missing there. But these big sections, you've got to think, why did they break away the way they did? You know, why did they break away in these big whole tower sections the way that they did? And the kind of version of the breakup that we have now that is I'd say the most recent and up to date kind of take on the breakup that we have is you can read it in Honesty of Glass which is an incredible book. I highly recommend it. But these towers, and B-Deck in particular, were really the only thing keeping the ship together. So, rather than this kind of top-down break, it kind of was breaking from the middle. She kind of started breaking the middle down and up. And the double bottom and B-Deck were kind of the only thing keeping her together. And... Even after the breakup, you've got to think, you know, did the stern roll onto its side like Honor and Glory showed a year or so ago? Did... Uh, I've just got a comment there. So, um, I maintain the authors of Honesty of Glass managed to get the most accurate description of the breakup. There isn't any other way to account for the horrible noise described by survivors. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think Honesty of Glass... Definitely got it spot on. I think that their their combined research and knowledge and expertise has given us the most accurate sense of the breakup that, that there is. Um, when it comes to what happened after the breakup, whether the stern rolled onto its side, whether it went down vertically, there's so much conflicting information. And as much as we have to rely on the eyewitness testimonies, we also need to look at them critically because, I mean, there were some, one in particular actually, one survivor actually said that he watched the ship break where the mast was on the stern. So he thought the the actual stern had just broken off the rest of the ship. So in his head, when they found the ship, they would find from the bow right up to the fourth funnel and then the stern. You know, that's, and he was convinced that's what he thought he'd saw, and that's completely valid. And, you know, he thought he saw that, but he couldn't have, as we, as we now know. So, survivor testimony is really important, but we need to take it with, with a pinch of salt. And I think when you're looking at survivor testimony, it almost comes to a kind of majority rules verdict. So, you, you read as many as you can, or you read them all, and then you think, What's the most common thread here? You know, if we're doing like some kind of like, um, you know, your your mean 
kind of outcome, looking for an average, you know. So those who say that it broke in half, those who say it broke between the third and fourth funnel, those who say it broke at the mast, look for your average. And if the majority are saying it broke in the middle, you know, between the second and third funnel, great. Then it probably broke between the second and third funnel, which we now know it pretty much did. Okay, it broke further back. It broke almost under the third funnel. James Cameron shows it, you know, breaking clean kind of between the third and, and fourth. Um, but we now know looking at the, the wreck and taking into account the towers that it pretty much broke in two, like right in the middle. And these towers, that's why they thought it broke where James Cameron showed it, because these towers were missing. So when you look at the stern, it, it looks like it broke there. But actually, when you slot in, almost like Tetris, when you take these Tetris pieces and put them back into the stern and then look at the stern as a whole, you say, ah, okay, it didn't break there. It broke there. Because these pieces are all scattered around the ocean floor. And that's what they weren't doing. They were just looking at the stern, looking at the bow, and putting them together. But they're forgetting that there's all this debris that they need to piece back together and put back on. And that's that's important. So, And they've done that now. And like we're saying, Honesty of Glass, great book. Read it. It's good. Very good. Uh, yeah, Honesty of Glass details the breakup incredibly. Um, yeah, it almost certainly wasn't how James Cameron depicted in the 1997 film, though, to be fair, he needed to make and sell a movie. Oh, yeah, completely. Um, yeah, James Cameron. Pe people, people slate the James Cameron film. I love it. I'll always love it. I'll defend it. You know, I'll, I'll quote-unquote criticise it where it needs criticised, but it's a film at the end of the day. It got so many people interested in Titanic and, you know, if there was a petition today on Titanic, there'd be far more people invested in it than there would be if James Cameron hadn't made the film. You know, I just think that he's only done good for it. Okay, there's some misinformation that could be attributed to the film, but it's not going to kill anyone. Like, it is what it is. Those who know, know, and those who don't can be educated. So that's that's our job. That's what we'll do. But I, I love the film. I think it's great. So that's what I'm going to wrap up. I've got a few other questions, but I think I'm actually going to leave them for another live stream and episode because they're pretty good questions, but actually there's a lot to go into them. So... I was asked about the socio-economic kind of relations between the crew and the passengers. So, you know, how were they treated? Um, how were they viewed? What were their experiences like, both as crew and passengers? Which I think there's a lot to go into there. I was asked about my thoughts on the Britannic 2000 film, which... It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's not all bad, but it's a lot. I was asked about the potential outcome of a head-on collision with the iceberg, 
and there's a lot to go into there because there are people that say that it could have stayed afloat and that they could have sailed to New York. Some people saying they could have sailed to Halifax. You know, there's a lot of debate there. Some people saying that it still would have sank, but in my opinion, it wouldn't have sank as quickly. And I, I think that's fair to say across the board. Even those who say it would sink, you know, it would not have sank as in two hours and 40 minutes. No way. If it hit head on. And then I was also asked about the 1997 movie portrayals compared to the real-life counterparts. So, you know, how James Cameron wrote Margaret Brown and how Kathy Bates portrays her compared to the real Margaret Brown. Um, like I said at the beginning of this, in the film they referred to her as Molly. That didn't happen in 1912. She was not referred to as Molly in 1912. So I think I'm going to leave these questions to the next episode and possibly even get some more questions um, between now and then. I mean, even just tonight, I've received questions on the live stream, which is great. So yeah, I hope that you have enjoyed this. Um, the episode what you're watching right now will be uploaded in audio format onto the Time to Talk Titanic podcast. Um, I've got a really exciting special guest coming up who I am speaking to in a week. Um, the filmmakers of Fred. If you've not looked it up, I've shared it my story multiple times. Um, look up the Fred short film. It's a short film about the lookout, Frederick Fleet, and it focuses on him and his older age and how his PTSD severely affected him and how surviving the Titanic disaster just followed him for the rest of his life and ultimately what outcome that had for him. Um, and they're taking a slightly horror kind of movie approach to it, which I think is really interesting in order to illustrate his mental health. So I'm speaking to the two filmmakers about that next week, but their Kickstarter for the film comes out tomorrow. So keep an eye out for that. And if you can donate to it, donate to it. Um, if you support it just by sharing the Kickstarter, awesome. That's so cool. Um, but look out for that as well. Look out for this. And thank you all so much for joining and for asking questions. And I will see you next time.